Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that you have given us, O Lord. Uh, Lord, for the grace that you have lavished on us. Uh, Lord, may we come to a deeper understanding of your word today as we study this passage in James. Uh, Lord, may uh, your word be rightly divided today, O Lord, and uh, help us, O Lord, uh, to be encouraged to act in faith, O Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, good morning. Uh, today, I have the, the privilege of going through uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And before we start, uh, it would be good for us to, to briefly talk about the, the context in which James was written. And so the author, James, is the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, it was written likely around 44 A.D., and it was during the period of persecution, intense persecution for the Christians, either directly after Stephen was martyred in Acts 7 or uh, during the period of Herod Agrippa's persecution in Acts 12. And again, this letter was written as encouragement uh, to those persecuted Jewish Christians and is, is also a, a call to faith in action. Now, this passage in particular uh, has led to much confusion to many readers of James, such as Martin Luther, uh, who struggled greatly with this passage. Uh, actually, he, he stated that James is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works. Now, although Martin Luther did not reject James from the canon of Scripture, uh, he once remarked, uh, that he would give his doctor's beret to anyone who could reconcile James and Paul. And so what our goal is today is to see that both James and Paul are not in contradiction to one another, right? These are both men who are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so if we rightly interpret them in the context in which they're writing, then we will see that there is harmony between what they are both saying and in doing so, hopefully, we will get that beret that Martin Luther promised. So, let us continue on. So this text deals with a crucial question. Are we justified by faith alone, or are we justified by faith plus our works? And so this is one of the major issues that I'm sure you're all familiar with that separates the Protestant evangelicals from Roman Catholicism. And so James presents a clear theme for us that I've put in your, your notes, which is faith without works is dead. And he repeats this in verse 14, in verse 17, and in verse 26. And so I've divided this lesson into three main points. Our first point is that real faith is not mere knowledge, right, facts without action. And that's in verses 14 to 17. Our second point is that real faith is not mere assent or agreement without action, and that's in verses 18 to 20. And then our third and final point, real faith combines knowledge, assent, and action, and that's in verses 21 to 26. So before we read our text in James, 
I would like to provide you with a, a simple illustration that, Lord willing, you will find helpful. I found it helpful, but hopefully you will find it helpful um, as well. And so when, when a bridge is constructed, right, it has a, a simple safety feature, right, guardrails. And those guardrails are there. They're designed specifically to keep you from driving off the bridge to your death. That is the purpose. And so with this illustration, you know, Paul is setting up one set of guardrails for us, and he's saying that we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith alone, and he is writing specifically to, to combat Jewish legalism in the form of the circumcision party. And we see this in Galatians 5, verses 3 through 6. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And then on the other side of the road, James is setting up guardrails, and he's opposing antinomianism. Right? The belief that we can profess faith and it has no corresponding fruit, no good fruit to show for it. And Paul actually agrees with this point. And we read this in Romans 6, verses 15 to 18. What then, shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So one commentator, which I think might be helpful, puts it this way, that James insists that a living faith will authenticate itself in the production of works. There is no antagonism between faith and works. They are not totally distinct concepts, but rather two inseparable elements of salvation. James insists that works are not added as an extra, work, an extra act to faith, but are essential expressions of faith. And as we see, James is echoing the teachings of Jesus, who says in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 27, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then in verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now with that, let's get to our passage for today, which is in James chapter 14, verses, oh, 
James chapter 2, verses 14 and 26. You find James chapter 14, that is not a good Bible that you have. Uh, you might need to turn that back in. All right. Starting in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, if it has no works, if faith, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. All right, so now let's, let's take a, a deeper look into each one of these verses keeping in mind our first point, which is real faith is not mere knowledge without action, verses 14 to 17. So what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Okay, so James is addressing the brethren while also confronting those who would claim to have faith, yet bear no fruit. James asks two questions. First, what use is it? Right? And he's referring to that sort of faith, that claimed faith that has no fruit. The second rhetorical question James asks in this verse is, can that faith save him? And so the question assumes the answer already, and the answer is clearly no, it cannot. So the main point that James is making is that so-called faith that has no resulting action is no faith at all. Paul agrees with James and just to give context, uh, after telling Titus to appoint elders in the church at Crete, uh, Paul writes why in Titus 1, verses 10. For there are many insubordinate idol talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. They profess to know God, right? They claim to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Additionally, Paul just so we have some clarification, in Titus 3, verse 4 to 7, Paul starts explaining how it is that we're saved. This is an act of God, not by man. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And right after he explains this, this, this 
monumental truth that we hold to, Paul then explains that those who profess Christ will do good works. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And let our people also learn, verse 14, to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. So again, a person professing faith without evidence of said faith is actually evidence to the contrary, right? If a person says, I know Christ, and they bear no fruit of knowing Christ, then they, it's clear that they don't know him. It, James makes this allusion when he says, it's like someone who looks intently in the mirror, and after going away, they forget what they look like, James 1.24. Or like a, a fruit tree that produces no fruit, right? It's completely unnatural. And as one theologian put it, Christianity, it flows from the head to the heart and then to the hands. And so you know, a question for us is, you know, do you or do I, do we manifest the qualities of being a child of God? And then moving on from there, back to James, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So James asked the question in verse 14, what use is it? And then he gives an illustration in verses 15 and 16. And the words, go in peace, be warned, be filled, that's a, that's a common greeting, it's a common thing that would be said. And yet he's saying that right there, though those words are good and nice, are of no use to the person who is starving and naked. They're just words. In the same way, right, someone who professes faith and does not act in light of this professed faith, his faith is worthless. And in 1 John 3, verses 17 to 19, I think John captures this idea of what, what James is saying here. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know, that, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And it's not only... James and John, again, we, we've talked about uh, J Jesus made the same remarks, and we also see this, that Jesus gives a commendation to those who have true saving faith, while also pronouncing judgment on those who don't have a true saving faith, right, a faith in action. And so if you would turn to Matthew 25, 34 through 46. Starting in... Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of these, one of, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And these are sobering words from our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, and what, what, what they're all saying is that, as you can see, the righteous it was natural for them to do these things, that when the Lord said you did, that they did it, it was like, when do we do that, Lord? It was because it was a natural outflow of the faith that they had. Whereas the ones who claimed Christ did none of those things, but they talked about it. And this brings us to our last point, or our last verse in point one, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. All right, so we must not confuse what James is saying. Right? He is not saying that one must add works to their faith in order to be saved. He is saying that good works, they will be the natural, genuine outflow, outflow or outcome of genuine saving faith. I think Wayne Gruden provides a helpful point noting that while the condition of being of the beginning of the covenant of grace is always faith in Christ's work alone, the condition of continuing in that covenant is said to be obedience to God's commands. Though this obedience did not in the Old Testament and does not in the New Testament earn us any merit with God, nonetheless, if our faith in Christ is genuine, it will produce obedience. And obedience to Christ is in the New Testament seen as necessary evidence that we are truly believers and members of the New Covenant. And we see this example again in 1 Thessalonians uh, where Paul is commending the Thessalonian church in chapter 3. He says, We give thanks always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Why? Verse 3, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our, our God and Father. And so a living faith, again, will manifest itself. And so this brings us to our second point. Real faith is not mere assent without action. And that's in verses 18 to 19. Verse 18, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Or another rendering, if it makes it easier, would be, Now someone may argue, Some people have faith, others have good deeds. I say, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds, but I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Right? James is challenging this professed believer to vindicate their claim of saving faith without doing works. Now, how do you do that? You don't, 
right? You can't. It's impossible. You cannot show that you have faith without any corresponding fruit thereof. And so the objector's view is that faith and works are alternative expressions. Some people have faith. Well, some people have works. It, it, it is not either or. It, it flows through the natural outworking of genuine saving faith. So how is it that we can show that we have faith? Well, James, if we had done a lesson on, chapter, uh, on James chapter 1, gives multiple examples in chapter 1. He speaks of perseverance through trials in, in verses 2 and 4, reliance on God for wisdom, a humble obedience to God's word, being doers of the word and not just hearers. I think MacArthur writing in his commentary uh, notes that one purpose of God's sovereign election is that the disciples who have been blessed with such revelation and understanding should produce spiritual fruit. The New Testament describes fruit as godly attitudes in Galatians 5.22, righteous behavior in Philippians 1, praise in Hebrews 13, and especially leading others to faith in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God in Romans 1, end quote. And not only this, but the writer of Hebrews gives us further testimony of faith in action in Hebrews 11, right, which is the, the, the saints' hall of faith, as it were. And all these people have witness given about them that they live by faith, thus receiving God's approval. Uh, we see in verse 4, Abel, who by faith offered up a better sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And Noah, who, verse, 11, verse, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared the ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So as the writer of Hebrews has illustrated, as Jesus has illustrated, as we've seen Paul and James, again, faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin, and they're always found together in Scripture. May we never make the mistake of making a profession of faith as the only litmus test, as the, the thing, and not obedience to Christ. For if we do, we'll wake up one day and we'll find that our form, our version of Christianity looks nothing like New Testament Christianity. So verse 19, if you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So this right here is the Shema, right? And the Jewish Christians, we be extraordinarily familiar with this. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So James is saying, hey, you believe in the Shema? Good for you. You believe that God will judge the living and the dead? Well done. You're on the same level as demons, except that demons tremble, right? They have the right response to God. And so he, he takes up this point, and then he provides support for it from the Old Testament. And so we're going to see... He's going to use the works of Abraham and Rahab as examples in verses 21 to 25. And then James is going to draw this section to a close by restating the key point, faith without deeds is dead. So if there is no good fruit in the life of the person who professes to believe in Christ, then the absence of good fruits is evidence that that professed faith is useless, as we have stated. 
And let's take one more moment to look at another example of useless faith that James did not include in this passage, but I think uh, is valuable in Acts 8. And so Luke gives us this example of Simon the sorcerer. And it's in Acts 8, verses 9 to 24. And I'll summarize here just for the sake of time. But as you read along, you'll, you'll, you'll be up with me. So there was a man named Simon. And everyone was amazed by the works and the things that they saw him do. And then Philip, Philip steps on the scene. And he begins preaching the good news in verse 12 about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the people who were formerly following Simon are now being baptized, both men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And then the apostles come, and they begin to lay hands on people, and people begin to receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon, seeing this, offers to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And moving on to verse 21, after he offers Peter money to buy the the Holy Spirit, Peter rebukes him and says, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So Simon's belief only went as deep as the miracles that he saw, the undeniable signs and wonders performed by Philip. He even believed the words spoken by Philip. Side note, this also illustrates that baptism does not save, because clearly Simon was not saved. Um, But it also shows us the clear difference between knowledge of the truth and assent to the truth, but actual action, truly believing in Christ, right? And Simon's bad fruit, as it were, which was him trying to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit, actually showed that he was an unbeliever. And so now, to recap all that we've gone through in James and other passages, so James 2, 14 to 20, describes a dead faith, and in verse 17, James asserted that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. And now, finally, we're going to look at the example of Abraham. And it's crucial here, again, that we understand what James is and is not saying here. So let's read verses 21 to 24. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, as we all know, The Bible clearly teaches that salvation is from the Lord by his grace to man who can do nothing because he is dead in his trespasses and sins. It is not of works so that no one may boast, right? That is Ephesians passage. We all can say amen, hallelujah to that. 
1689 London Baptist Confession provides us with a good definition of justification. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Faith thus, receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love. And so a simple reading of James might lead you to conclude that James and Paul are in direct contradiction to one another regarding the manner of how one is justified, despite everything that we have gone over so far, and that would be completely understandable, because if you look at Romans 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So we read here that justification is gained through believing God, or another way of putting it, through faith alone. But as we just read in James, right, he writes that justification, that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here I must reiterate, James and Paul, right, they are not in contradiction with one another. These are both men writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As previously stated, using the guardrails analogy, they are both writing to different audiences in the context in which they wrote. Paul is combating the Judaizers who say, that you must obey the law of Moses in order to be saved, whereas James is combating this antinomian idea that you don't need to do anything. It's all grace. I can do whatever I want to, live any way I want to. Hey, but I love Jesus. And so both pathways outside those guardrails lead to death. And so Paul is refuting the argument right here that the cause of our faith is our works. Whereas he's saying that cannot be the cause in Romans 4. Whereas James, James is writing about faith being a natural result of salvation. Paul, writing in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were saved by God, God alone, and you were created by God for good works. And so lastly, before we reach our third and final point, we must ask the question, what has James said in his epistle, if anything, about salvation? So earlier in James' epistle, which we didn't get to because that's in chapter 1, but if you turn to James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, James writes, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. So in this context, right, that James is writing, the Father of light gave us, gives all perfect gifts, gives us all perfect gifts. And the, the greatest gift that we have is our salvation in Christ Jesus. And so when we read this context, we see that James makes a clear statement about how it is that we're saved. And so is he teaching that salvation is achieved by some work of merit? Absolutely not. We see it in, in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. But what James is saying brings us to our third and final point. Real faith combines knowledge, assent, and action. And that's in verses 21 to 26. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And again, this question assumes that the answer is yes. James has combined two events here. He's combined the events in Genesis 15, verse 6, which says, Then he believed in the Lord and reckoned it to him as righteousness. So he applies that to Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19 in the offering of Isaac. And these two events happen nearly 30 years apart. And so when reading Genesis 15, we see that Abraham is believing God and the promises that God made that he would have many descendants, though at this point in time he has none. And he links that to Abraham sacrificing willingness to sacrifice Isaac in chapter 22. Again, nearly three decades later. So, so why is he linking these two together? What is he trying to show? And he is showing like, the important connection between these two events in history. The statement in Genesis 15 regarding the faith of Abraham was ultimately fulfilled in the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. Abraham was able to vindicate his claim of faith by his good works when he offered up Isaac, right? his quote-unquote good works being his obedience. His works justified or vindicated him in the sight of men. Like those who were there, him, Isaac, all of us who get to read about his, his works, that is the sense in which Abraham was justified by works because he was willing to obey God and sacrifice his own son, Isaac, whom he loved. This demonstrated that his claim to believe God was true. That act was the chief proof to men that he had truly been justified by the Lord 30 years earlier. And in James, in verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith is perfected. Abraham did good works, and his faith worked with his works. As a result, Abraham, of his, of his continual walking in faith, right, it re resulted in him growing to spiritual maturity. Hebrews 11, going back to Hebrews 11, gives us mile markers of Abraham's faith, where we see he starts out, and then we see the progression of his faith. In verse 8, we see that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeying by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. 
So we see Abraham stepped out in faith, mile marker number one. And then Hebrews 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Abraham lived by faith day by day in a foreign land. And finally, in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the, the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. And so we see Abraham's faith through, at work throughout his entire, or the majority of his life. It was a living faith, is a, a growing faith, is an active faith. And it, it culminated into this, this one, uh, it, it culminated to him being a mature, vibrant believer, trusting in God's goodness, trusting that the Lord would fulfill his promises. And our goal today should be that as well, that our, our faith would be a mature, vibrant, living faith, that we would produce good fruit and give glory to God. And then moving on to verse 23 in James, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And this introduces further results of Abraham's willingness to obey God. First, the scripture about Abraham's faith being credited to him as righteousness Genesis 15:6 was fulfilled or brought to ultimate significance. And second, he was called the friend of God. Abraham, being a friend of God, is also mentioned in Isaiah 41:8 and 2 Chronicles 27, if you are interested in fleshing that one out. But the faith of Abraham and God's verdict of not guilty were fulfilled or given their ultimate significance when Abraham's faith was manifested with his works. It is after the greatest of those acts, cited in James verse 21, that the angel of the Lord reasserted God's verdict, now I know that you fear God, Genesis 22:12. Abraham was given the privilege, the honor of being called a friend of God. And so friend of God is, is a high honor that all of us should aspire to. Jesus said in John 15, verses 14 to 15, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Friends, we have been gifted with God's fully revealed word. And Jesus invites us to be his friends, thus becoming friends of God. None of us should neglect that possibility of such a great honor. We should aspire to be growing in grace, increasing our love for God, our closeness of access to him, that he might lift us up just like he did Abraham to be called his friends. And now let's continue on to verse 24 of James 2. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so again, having proved his case with Abraham as an example, James transitions us 
to speak about Rahab, and we've gone over the ways in which we are justified, and that the faith alone that he is referring to, again, is a professed faith that is alone by itself and has no fruit of being true saving faith. Verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So Rahab, a harlot in the doomed town of Jericho, right, believed God because she heard about the mighty works that God had done. And we find this in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and, and when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. And so we see here that she believed the reports of God. She believed what she heard about God. She agreed with what she heard about God, and she acted in faith by protecting God's people. And there is a lot of speculation as to why James chose to include Abraham, the father of the faith, and Rahab, a harlot of, of Gentile descent. Um, I think one thing is clear, right, is that God's saving grace and his power are for all of us. Right? It doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter where you come from, right? you need God's saving grace. And then in verse 26, having proved his point, having shown and demonstrated through multiple examples, James ends with this, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James restates his main point again, faith without works is dead. Just as you need a body and a spirit to be alive, in the same way, faith apart from works is a dead faith. And ironically, you know, Martin Luther, who uh, struggled with James, actually gives us a really good uh, short summary that captures what James is talking about here. And so Martin Luther writes, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly, it does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. So, takeaway, God saw fit to set up these guardrails for us, right, so that we don't drive off the narrow bridge that he has made for us, if you were, to drive through. Um, 
we are not saved by works as the guardrail that Paul has set up, but our faith is not absent of works, and that's the other guardrail that James set up for us. Now, there's a lot still that we have not covered that can be said about this. So if you have any questions, you have any concerns, I am here, we can talk about this, we can sharpen one another with God's word, and then I can point you to the elders to answer your questions. (laughs) No, but I, I will be here. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you uh, for helping us to uh, understand your word, O oh Lord, to be able to worship together. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that uh, my words uh, would be an, an encouragement, O oh Lord, and not a, a hindrance to the gospel, Lord, that uh, you would use all things for your glory and that we would continue to grow in our faith and our trust in you and our love for you, that our faith would work with our works, O Lord, and that we would be salt and light in this world, O Lord, that we would be not just hearers of your word, but doers also, not deceiving ourselves, and that our faith will be shown to be genuine to all those who are here and who are outside of these walls, O Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.